evening, everyone. It's fantastic to get to speak here with you, uh, you again. I'm really excited to discuss the American political and social founding because the story's been rewritten numerous times over the course of our history. And it's accumulated a lot of mythology. Um, so that, for example, in 1863, at the height of the American Civil War, we find Abraham Lincoln declare that four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Now, if you do the math, he was referring to the events of 1776 as the point at which this new nation supposedly emerged. But if we go back and investigate this claim as I'd like to do tonight, we'll discover that in 1776, we don't in fact find a new nation, a new national identity springing forth fully formed like Athena from Zeus's head. Uh, nor yet do we find that national identity in 1789 with the ratification of the Constitution. While Lincoln, and indeed many of the founding fathers, did claim that a new nation had emerged during this period, this claim was more of a useful political fiction rather than an actual reality. And for years after the formation of the United States, this national identity would elude the founding generation as their regional identities competed for federal power, causing them to denounce one another as traitors to the republic, form alliances with foreign powers, and even push for secession from the government that they just so recently helped to create. There have been a lot of people debating the topic of American nationalism recently, but the point of my talk tonight is not to argue for or against that, but rather to present a more complex narrative of America's founding, and then through that narrative to help provide a framework for defining that discussion. Okay, and clearly part of the need here is to simply define our terms, something that's been criminally lacking in many of these arguments. And I've seen people use the term nation, um, as, as I'm going to use it here tonight, to refer to a people with a shared cultural identity, one that they're self-aware of, that they, that they formed, and that they, um, they can identify out there among themselves. Um, but then people talking about this will, without any awareness that they're shifting the definition, Use it in the same sentence to refer to the political apparatus of the state. And I think that what's happening here is that we're so used to thinking that all modern states are nation states, um, that therefore the state and nation are simply the same thing. Um, but if we stop and think about it and look around, we'd find numerous examples of modern states that rule over more than one cultural group. Just ask the Catalonians or the Basques if Spain is a nation state. Or we find cultural nations that live among multiple states, like the Kurds. But over here in the United States, it's perhaps a little harder for us to see through the national mythologies that we've papered over on in the past. And this, this national mythologizing, it's not a new phenomenon. We've been doing it from as early as the 1770s, when due to tensions with the mother country, the colonies began to rewrite their history suddenly emphasizing a common American identity, when up until that point, they'd stressed a common culture instead with the mother country, while attempting to distance themselves from one another. And today, we tend to read the American Revolution back onto the American past, which makes sense. Uh, we want to start the myth of national union with the war of political separation. 
but this causes the American Revolution to then lose its historical context, as though it, it only emerged with the discovery of Locke's theory of natural rights or, without taxa or taxation without representation. We forget that for 100 years, through the 17th and 18th centuries, Britain was racked with civil wars, revolutions, and rebellions. Um, but, you know, we can hardly be blamed, actually, for, for not giving this violence the emphasis that it's due when the British themselves conducted a historical whitewashing of much of this period, um, which then enabled them to later mock the French Revolution as something that was uniquely radical, all the while ignoring that they themselves had on two separate occasions in the 17th century deposed their king and overhauled their political system. And, uh, and on one of these occasions, they, they'd beheaded the king and instituted a republic that devolved into a military dictatorship. So. And it was to, to flee these wars and the resulting persecutions that caused the British to settle in specific regions within the American colonies and bringing within their own distinct cultures to these locations. And then while they, once they got to America, they then set about persecuting one another and participating in the civil wars with New England or sometimes actually returning back to the mother country to fight in the parliamentarian army against the king while also waging battles with royalists here in the Americas. And then also added to this mix were then hundreds of thousands of Germans and also Dutch that had fled from the wars and persecutions going on in Europe. So these distinct colonial regions, they had over 100 years prior to the American Revolution to grow and further develop their own cultural identities. And the, uh, the suspicions and hostilities between these regions that were born out of these civil wars, they continued on even after the wars had ended in Britain by 1745. And border disputes between, between the colonies that led to open conflict um, between no fewer than six different colonies, and even as late as 1774, right on the, the very eve of the American Revolution, American colonists were actually shooting one another in the Second Pennamite War. And they put the whole thing on hold briefly just to busy themselves waging war against the British, but once peace had then been declared, the Third Pennamite War broke out in 1784. So, um, throughout this colonial period, all the way up until about 1774, we tend to find a stronger sense of loyalty and cultural identity between the colonies and England, as I said, than with one another. But this all kind of began to change as Britain began a process of imperial reform and that included increased centralization and regulation over the American colonies in order to pay for the cost of empire. The colonists saw this, however, as a resurgence of the tyranny that had provoked the civil wars that they had just so recently fought. And as one colonist put it, quote, as the king cannot by his sole authority lay a tax on the people of Britain without their consent, as in the case of ship money, and this this is a reference to the civil wars. So the king and parliament cannot, for the same reason, lay a tax on America without their consent, unquote. And the complaint that they had was that the British government was uniquely singing, singling out Englishmen living in America and thereby lumping them in together, whether they recognized a common bond or not. And so we find Patrick Henry 
1774, declaring that through these unlawful acts, the British government had lost its right to claim authority over the American colonies. And he announced, quote, government is dissolved and we are in a state of nature, unquote. And then he goes on, quote, the distinction between Virginians, New Yorkers, and New Englanders are no more. I am not a Virginian, but an American, unquote. Patrick Henry, however, was, he was ahead of most of his fellow colonists by several years with this sentiment, to show where the general trend would eventually lead. Um, most colonists would continue to retain their English identity right up to the start of the shooting. But as it became increasingly apparent that the British government would continue to treat English colonists uh, living in America separately, and that they were willing to escalate the tensions rather than defuse them, Englishmen living in the colonies felt the need to respond. Immediately, col uh, colonial elites began to present in their papers and speeches a new mythological American identity, one that claimed to reach back into their colonial past and providing the revolutionaries with a new historical narrative to unite around. And it was in the midst of this evolving identity that the colonies formed the Continental Congress. Now, this, this was not a governing state and it couldn't make or execute laws over the colonies. It was instead a representative body to provide a unified legal case for the colonies before parliament and to help plan a joint action among the colonies. Um, but we probably remember the most for signing the Declaration of Independence. But that too, it was only later after the war as part of our mythologizing that we've come to place such an emphasis on the congressional signing of the Declaration of Independence. In actuality, declarations of independence had already been declared all over the country at the colony level and even by individual counties. The importance that was placed on Congress declaring independence was really more about securing foreign aid, trying to get the French, the Spanish, and the Dutch involved. And as one person remarked at the time, Congress's Declaration of Independence did not make the colonies independent. It merely described the existing state of political separation. So once the states had authorized their delegates in Congress to declare independence, each state then drafted a new constitution to reflect their independent status. And now facing a massive invasion from Britain, the delegates at Congress proposed that they form a military union and the Articles of Confederation were drafted. Although it was a tighter union than what had been formed with the Continental Congress, again, the Articles did not form what we would think of as a state government. Um, John Adams described the Articles as uh, a diplomatic assembly of ambassadors. And as a war measure, the Articles were written to function more like the NATO alliance than even like the European Union. Congress had the power to declare war, print or borrow money to finance the war, and they could appoint a general. But even such things as treaties could only be done with a supermajority of the states represented. And then other than these war measures, the Congress could only make requests of the states. As one congressman noted, Quote, we have no coercive or legislative authority. The states alone had the power to act coercively 
against their citizens, unquote. Congress approved the Articles in 1777, just a year after independence, but they didn't have the authority to form a union on behalf of the states. And so the Articles were sent to the state governments for ratification. And there the Articles were debated and contested for nearly six years, not being fully approved and taking effect until 1781, just two years before the war actually ended. So, so much for that. Um, But meanwhile, many of the states were themselves under British occupation or invasion. And much of the state rule throughout the war fell not even to the state governments, but to local autonomous committees. And when peace was finally settled in 1783 at the Treaty of Paris, the British signed alongside 13, quote, free, sovereign, and independent states, unquote. Um, Another result of our national mythology we often overlook is to what extent the conflict had been a civil war. The American Revolution was brutal and violent, yes, between Britain, but also between the colonial forces fighting one another. And perhaps as many as 500,000 colonists remained loyal to the crown, and there were about 200,000 actively fighting in the British army, either as regulars or militia. About 60,000 permanently left the colonies, while those who remained faced widespread persecution. Local patriot shadow governments created committees of safety to root out disloyal civilians and even publicly torture them for doing things as unpatriotic as simply refusing to accept payment in grossly inflated continental currency. And although the war can't be reduced to the same cultural distinctions of the previous English civil wars, we could still observe the same divide, such as between religious denominations, political ideologies, and regional cultures and ethnicities that they had carried over with them from the British Isles. As the war wound to an end, the reason for American unification between the states quickly evaporated. The brief attempt at an American identity began to devolve back into local regionalisms. The Confederation Congress was now bankrupt, both financially and politically. And Governor Morris, a leading politician from New York, declared that the states required, quote, a continuance of the war, which will convince people of the necessity of obedience to common councils for general purposes, unquote. And in 1783, a powerful cabal of politicians and financiers that had invested money in the war effort and the Congress began consulting on how best to go about establishing a central government. And if they couldn't grow Congress's power by keeping the war going, then perhaps they could use the Continental Army um, to threaten Congress and force them to create a, um, a central bank and a financial program over the states. In fact, a military coup um, led by the highest ranking generals in the Continental Army was actually set into motion to march on to Philadelphia. And it was only averted at the last minute by General Washington himself. The states quickly set about disbanding the army without pay. And the proponents for central government, with great disappointment and despair, shelved their plans for a later date. The Spanish ambassador accurately summed up the situation when he reported that the states were, quote, almost without government, without a treasury or means of obtaining money, and torn between hope and fear of whether or not their confederation can be consolidated, 
unquote. At several points, there were attempts in Congress to amend the articles to give Congress more taxing powers over the states. But at this point, many of the states had actually even stopped sending delegates to uh, Congress at all. In the words of one congressional delegate, quote, the Confederated Compact is no more than a rope of sand. And if a more efficient government is not obtained, a dissolution of the union must take place, unquote. Now these, this, this, this concern sounds really ominous to us because I think we tend to see the union as the assumed status quo. But remember at this point, the need for a union between the states or the, the existence of a union was no more assumed than you know, we would have a union over Europe today. And as Fisher Ames of Massachusetts remarked, quote, instead of feeling as a nation, a state is our country. We look with indifference, often with hatred, fear, and aversion to the other states, unquote. And instead of a national identity, a single national identity, three or four distinct regions with different goals existed that could kind of roughly be described as New England, looking towards the Atlantic, towards trade with Britain, um, the southern states seeking relationship with France, and then the western states pursuing expansion towards the Mississippi River and towards Spain. When in 1786, John Jay, on behalf of Congress, attempted to barter away the trade rights along the Mississippi in favor of those across the Atlantic, New Englanders cheered the treaty while Western states threatened to leave the Confederation for good. And Patrick Henry himself, who had, you know, just back in 1774, if you remember, had denounced his own state identity for a national one, he now announced that he, quote, would rather part with the Confederation than relinquish the navigation of the Mississippi, unquote. Congress quickly became the battleground of competing regional identities, each vying for control over the Confederation and who would get to create and define the national identity. And in fact, it could be argued that Congress actually had the opposite effect of creating a single cultural American identity. Historian Alan Taylor writes, quote, rather than unifying a nation, Congress became a cockpit that bred regional resentment, unquote. And as one congressman at the time declared, the quote, great national contest was whether one part of the continent shall govern the other, unquote. And we see multiple mentions that since, since the states were not in fact a nation, any, other, um, any attempt to unify them under a single government would not be a national government, but an imperial one, uh, with one region dictating to the others. And as one congressman, this time from New England, worried, quote, if America becomes an empire, then the seat of government will be to the southwards and the northern states will be the sovereigns of slaves. And it is, um, will be, sorry, excuse me. If America becomes an empire, the seat of government will be to the southwards and the northern states will be insignificant provinces. Empire will suit the southern gentry. They are habituated to despotism by being the sovereigns of slaves, and it is only accident and interest that has made the body of them the temporary sons of liberty, unquote. And at the same time, New England historians began writing and publishing books in which New England's colonial history took a primary role in the development of this new supposed American identity. But this common American identity was so little recognized by state citizens 
that rather than live in an American empire dominated by a different regional culture, many believed that their interests and identities could be better served by joining the empires of British Canada or Spanish Louisiana. And in fact, um, many at the time thought that this, this, would, this seemed the most likely end to the Republican experiment and that the American states would eventually be just absorbed into other European American empires. So as a last ditch effort to maintain an American union, those politicians wanting a more centralized government called for a constitutional convention in 1787 to amend the articles. And um, although it probably would have come to nothing, the state governments were convinced to send delegates after a military uprising in Massachusetts broke out in response to that state's oppressive taxes and refusal to seek political reform. And then since rebellions of a similar sort were rumbling throughout many of the states, the state governments agreed to discuss granting more financial powers to Congress, again, just merely as amendments, though. Um, in another talk at the George Buchanan Forum here, I, I discussed at length how a group of delegates at the convention managed to pull off a political coup. And rather than merely amend the articles as they'd been tasked with, they illegally pushed for the formation of a new central state. Now, vicious debates over sectional issues almost caused the whole convention to come to nothing, but in the end, they barely managed to approve a compromised constitution that left really neither party happy. Um, and then after that, through voting malapportionment and the ratific ratification conventions, they foisted upon a 50-50 divided citizenry a new political constitution that provided this new American government with expansive taxing, judicial, military, and enforcement powers. And in response to this news, some regions, um, crowds rushed out to cheer the formation of this new government, while crowds in other cities burnt copies of the Constitution and buried coffins labeled liberty. And it was declared by one observer that west of the Susquehanna River, quote, at least nine out of every 10 people would at the risk of their lives and their property be as willing to oppose the new constitution as they were the British in their late designs, unquote. So those that had, they'd been pushing for a central financial system from the early days of the Confederation are now finally able to pursue their goals. And especially since with George Washington at the helm as the executive, there were few who dared to cast doubt on his virtue and wisdom. And the new Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, he plowed forward with a, um, with a federal financial program of very dubious legality, which included a massive central bank and a national excise tax on whiskey. So, um, so as, as federal tax collectors then began fanning out over the country, Western counties in particular denounced Hamilton's tax as unfair and illegal since they claimed that it was not a luxury tax as he had claimed, but they said it had been purposefully designed by Hamilton actually as an income tax to economically crush the Western counties since converting crops into alcohol was used as a medium of exchange throughout the West. Um, this went on for several years and then resistance finally peaked in 1794 at the Battle of Bower Hill between regulators and federal tax collectors. And Hamilton leaped at the opportunity to enforce a little national unity. And at his urging, he got Washington to call up 
and basically put under Hamilton's own command. And, um, and remember, he's just the Secretary of the Treasury. All right, so he's now in command of a federal army numbering some 13,000 troops to go then and invade Pennsylvania. Martial law was declared in the backcountry, and the rebellion faded away in the face of this overwhelming force. And the warning came loud and clear that the federal government was capable and willing to use force to maintain the union and compliance with federal law. Over the next several years, Northern financiers invested in the federal government, championed the National Bank, consolidation of state debts, and a massive internal improvement program. But simultaneously, Westerners and Southerners complained that they were being colonized by the North. And in a bitter twist of irony, the new taxes that were being levied on the American citizens to pay for all these federal programs, it was now actually higher than those that they'd been forced to pay under the British government prior to the war. And then feeling betrayed, over the next several years, nearly 40,000 Americans emigrated to British Upper Canada and swore allegiance to the crown. And by 1800, Upper Canada had more former Americans in it than Canadians. And this, this didn't demonstrate a shift in their political ideology from republicanism to monarchy, really. Um, plenty of these, these immigrants, they'd fought in the American Revolution and were merely seeking freedom from the taxation and governmental control. And all of this, the British government was willing to grant them so long as they, in turn, agreed to stay out of Canadian politics. And for those Americans who stayed behind, between the financial burden and the Jay Treaty with Britain in 1794, the people of the southern and western states began threatening secession. And to such an extent that President George Washington actually declared that in the likely event of a southern um, of Virginia seceding, he decided to move north. And by the end of his presidency, the once sacred Washington, who many had hoped would provide a unifying nationalism, was instead being openly denounced on the streets and in newspapers as senile, a blasphemer, a traitor, guilty of collusion with Britain. And Washington remarked at one point that he was being criticized, quote, in such exaggerated and indecent terms as could scarcely be applied to a Nero, unquote. And so exhausted and convinced that the Union would end in a few years, Washington refused to run for a third term. In Washington's farewell address, he bade goodbye to the presidency. Um, but it can also be seen as a farewell to the Union. In it, he denounced the growing party spirit that animated American politics, saying, quote, the National Union is the palladium of your political safety and prosperity. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations, unquote. America, he claimed, was united by a common goal. But, quote, designing men had attempted to excite a belief that there is a real difference of local interests and views. You cannot shield yourselves too much against the jealousies and heartburnings which spring from these misrepresentations. They tend to render alien to each other those who ought to be bound together by fraternal affection, unquote. 
But he ended by expressing that he did not dare to hope that his counsel would, quote, prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations, unquote. And if Washington thought that the country was destined to separate, his successor, John Adams, nearly managed in his single term as a president to prove Washington right. As a fellow member of the Federalist Party, Adams kept on Washington's administration and continued his policies of financial centralization, which sparked another tax revolt, Freeze's Rebellion. And that again was put down by the federal military. But Adams added to this growing list of grievances with the highly constitutional Alien and Sedition Acts. And this allowed for the arbitrary federal regulation of immigration, citizenship, and free speech, including outlawing criticism of the ruling administration. Uh, the one notable exception to this was the vice president. You could say whatever you wanted to about him, he, uh, who happened to be Thomas Jefferson, and he was an ardent member of the opposing Republican Party. For many Republicans, this was the last straw, and demands for secession became so loud that Hamilton even advocated uh, a federal military invasion of Virginia. And James Madison, who'd previously been one of the chief orchestrators of the Constitution, along with Thomas Jefferson, responded by publishing anonymously in the Virginia and Kentucky legislatures resolutions denouncing the federal government's illegal actions and declaring that the federal government could not sit in judgment on its own actions and that it was up to the states to judge the constitutionality of the federal government and interpose to protect their citizenry. And Jefferson then went one step farther in the Kentucky resolution and even argued that states could nullify unconstitutional federal laws. The Federalists were outraged by this resolution and in turn denounced them as unconstitutional and seditious. In private correspondences, Jefferson wrote that the federal government had now proven itself entirely tyrannical. Quote, it is but too evident that the branches of our foreign department of government, executive, judiciary, and legislative are in combination to usurp the powers of the domestic branch, unquote. And note his use of the terms foreign government and domestic, by which he refers to the federal and the state governments. On multiple occasions, Jefferson privately proposed secession and warned of coming, quote, revolution and blood, unquote. On one occasion, he wrote to a friend, quote, when the sole alternatives left are the disillusion of our union, or submission to a government without limitations of powers between these two evils, when we must make a choice, there can be no hesitation, unquote. And, and don't forget that this is coming from a sitting vice president at a time when it's actually illegal to speak out against the ruling administration. And it was widely believed uh, that had the Federalist Party at the time been aware that Jefferson had been responsible for the Kentucky resolution, that he would have been tried for treason. But the Republican states did not secede. Because in the following year, in the next presidential election, Jefferson's Republican Party just barely managed to win in what they referred to as the Revolution of 1800. And this was due in no small part because Adams had split his own party over his peace treaty with France. 
And with Jefferson and the Republicans now in power, it was the New Englanders' turn to threaten secession. The Alien and Sedition Acts expired. Jefferson pardoned those that had been imprisoned by them. The whiskey tax ended and the central bank was closed. But then in 1803, Jefferson seized the opportunity to personally approve, without Congress, the purchase of the Louisiana Territory from the French. And while Republicans cheered this expansion, the sudden territorial growth of future Western states threatened New England's power, and again, the Federalists threatened secession. At this point, a new threat began to rear its head to American sovereignty. And while the Napoleonic Wars were raging over in Europe, British warships had begun boarding and seizing American sailors. The British government claimed that Americans couldn't demand loyalty to an abstraction such as a republic. I mean, loyalties between individuals, between um, subjects and subjects and a monarch. All he had to do to see evidence of this was how quickly the Americans in Canada had been willing to trade their anarchic liberties for the loving embrace of a paternal king. And British policy at the time was that former British subjects, regardless of how long they'd resided in America, were perpetually bound as subjects to the crown simply by virtue of having been born in Britain. And if they were caught as sailors on American ships, they could be arrested as traitors and pressed into the Navy. And this all going on at the same time that Britain was allowing former Americans to move to Canada and swear allegiance to the crown. Americans denounced this as a double standard and in retaliation, Jefferson passed the Embargo Act of 1807. But New Englanders, um, the merchants there, complained that the embargo damaged their economy while leaving agrarian communities in the South and the West untouched. And they claimed that this was all part of a Republican conspiracy to destroy New England commercial power. And again, there were cries for secession. However, the Republicans managed to hold on to their power um, through Jefferson's presidency, through two terms, and then again um, when Madison ran for president in 1809, at which point the conflict with Britain broke out into full war. And the Republican government believed that if they went and invaded Canada, that the Americans living there would be easily persuaded to rejoin the American states. Um, but when U.S. forces invaded they were bitterly disappointed to discover that the American emigres were not eagerly awaiting liberation by a Republican army. And while initially friendly, the destruction wrought by American troops, particularly by the Irish in the American army, quickly alienated the locals, and the invasion was so poorly orchestrated that it, it achieved absolutely nothing. So, um, and the, meanwhile, while this is going on, the New England Federalists were bitterly denouncing the war as the result of a dangerous and overzealous republicanism. And still angry over the embargo, they threatened to turn the conflict into a civil war by serving the British as spies and smugglers. And in 1814, Federalist opposition to the war grew so strong that they actually called for a convention of New England states to discuss their grievances and propose a series of amendments um, with the intention that this would limit Southern power and, that, and then simultaneously, they ironically switched their stance on nullification and declared themselves in favor of nullifying the current federal laws being imposed upon them by the Republican government. Fortunately for the Madison administration, 
The Federalists met at the Hartford Convention at the worst possible time, and just as they were preparing to make their demands to the federal government, Americans, uh, the American forces won the Battle of New Orleans, and peace with Britain had been signed. A sudden wave of patriotic fervor swept the country, and the Federalists were denounced by the Republican government as traitors, and this basically ended the Federalists as a political party. Although the war had been an ill-defined conflict with culturally similar people fighting one another on both sides of an arbitrary border, American and Canadian historians would end up recording the conflict as having been fought between two competing nations. As historian Alan Taylor writes again, quote, the post-war culture generated distinct national histories on both sides of the border. To bolster patriotism within, the historians made foils of the people on the other side of a newly significant border. Those histories subtly distorted the war by imposing on the past the nationalism spawned after that conflict and because of it. By writing of the Americans fighting the British as distinct nations, each united, the patriotic historians obscured the civil war waged for the future of the empire and of the continent, a civil war that had divided Americans, Indians, and the Irish during a lingering age of revolution, unquote. And through this, the first real inkling of American nationalism had finally kind of begun to, to filter up. And the Republican Party would then use this, this patriotism to institute their own national bank taxing powers and internal improvement programs. Um, then American nationalism would ebb and flow over the next 50 years. But the sectional politics and regional identities that had threatened to break up the government along cultural lines would remain. And people would continue to be so suspicious of using the term nation to refer to the American people that in 1830, at an interstate Episcopalian convention, when the committee proposed starting a prayer for the quote-unquote whole people of America with the phrase, oh Lord, bless our nation, it drew so many objections that they ended up replacing the word nation with union. And throughout this period, we often see this preference for the term union over nation. Union allowed for a more complex relationship between multiple political states with cultural distinctions. But this union was ruled over by an extremely fragile government of competing nationalisms, one not and not defined so much by political ideologies as they liked to claim, but by local self-interest. And we cannot underestimate how much these competing regions were held together in the Union by the sword, both foreign and domestic. And obviously these regional distinctions would ultimately lead not just to secession, but also even the full-blown civil war in 1860, when in the midst of an invasion and occupation of half the country, Lincoln would declare that we were and always had been a single nation. So I'd like, to, I'd like to end this narrative with a thought concerning a, um, of all things, a Twitter comment that I saw the other day made by someone um, pointing to the claims made in one of the Federalist papers as proof that Americans at the time believed that they held a shared historical American culture. And hopefully after this talk, that claim has been complicated. 
Yet there were, in fact, appeals made at that time to a shared culture. But we can't use these appeals as proof that this is, in fact, what the Americans at the time generally actually believed. And at the most, we can use these claims to demonstrate that the author thought that such arguments were useful for their own political ends. I mean, humans naturally use history as anachronistic tools for our own contemporary ends. And American politicians and historians have been rewriting the American past from the moment that they thought that a national American identity would be useful to them. We have a, we have a real problem with using the past as a tool for today. And we need to really think through exactly what is the proper method by which we formulate lessons from history. And again, I, I'm not pointing this out to say that this means we should or shouldn't seek an American nationalism today. I just merely want to point out that it's not so easy as to simply argue that because we had a single state government in 1789, that therefore we should have that same governing body today or that we owe it loyalty. And the lessons we draw from our past often have more to do with the mythologies we've written about it than with the actual past. The formation of the American state did not create a nation in 1789, it created a union. And if nationalism is an evolving identity within that union, not inherently linked to the overarching state, then we should question people who point to the Constitution as the basis for any argument for nationalism today. Because it might just as reasonably be argued that as it was at the time of the founding generation, our national loyalty is owed to a much different body than that defined by the borders of the modern American state. Thank you.